Join Dennis Seagrave for Den at Ten. Hello. Well, it's been a fairly busy weekend so far. Having so long away and away with the van, we've been tidying up the garden and sorting out a lot of stuff that's got overgrown while we've been away. You wouldn't think that Boston Ivy would grow so fast in the course of 10 days, but it was well over the eaves of the garage instead of just being just below them. But it was tidied up and we thought today we'd have a bit of a break. We did quite a bit of training with the dog yesterday. Had him on his collar that seems to stop him pulling so badly. And walked him with that over to the field, then give him the freedom of the field and let him have a gallop round. Tested his recall and he behaved very well. So we thought today we'll treat him, we'll take him for a walk through the woods. So we went out to the local woodland area and we couldn't park. There were signs up saying a cycle event today and the road was smothered with traffic and cars. So we thought we'll not block anybody's access or create too much problems on the road, we'll go elsewhere. So we went out to Cromford Meadows instead and gave him the freedom of the 10 metre training lead, galloped him along the side of the river there, brought him back, put him on his halter and walked him around Cromford Wharf. Then we went across the road to the mill and there was a market on in there it was quite interesting and he walked around amongst all the people and other dogs, not a problem, really proud of him. And we went a bit further where I've, I've not been before, we went to the church and then walked along the riverside on the opposite side to where I go fishing. I've seen people walking along there many times but I've never been there and walked along it myself. So it started off by going into the churchyard and uh, impressive church, big portico on the entrance and a sign saying to the Arkwright graves. Well, Richard Arkwright, so to say Sir Richard Arkwright, founded all the mills in Cromford and did all the work there, very famous person. So I thought, oh, I'll have a look at the Arkwright graves. I'm not sure whether Sir Richard's buried there or not, to be honest, but I thought I'll have a look at the, the family graves. Well, I could only make out one name on one of the gravestones. They are sorely in need of either some loving care to restore them and put the names back so as they're legible, or some little signs putting up to say whose grave is whose, because you couldn't make out what it was all about. But it was interesting to walk along that side. There's a bit of a sculpture trail and a bit of a set of different keep fit items for people to practice on. We didn't go all the way down because it comes out on the A6 and we didn't want to walk back through the road. So we, we doubled back and came back and back through the mill car park over the road and onto the wharf again. Considering it was a, a sort of a makeshift idea, we did very well with it. 
I noticed yesterday I was reading a news item and apparently there's yet another new monument, another new memorial gone up in the National Memorial Arboretum at Oribus. I've said many a time it was within about a quarter of a mile of where I used to live. I used to take my dog a walk there when I was a child. So it always is of interest to me to see what they're doing there. Now this new memorial was to the miners. Miners who had worked in the industry and more particularly miners who had gone to fight in the wars. Now this brought back a little bit of a poignant note because I'd actually gone down the mine only on a visit once but it brought home to me just what miners used to do when they went down into a deep pit. We were at the mine courtesy of the mine's rescue team and they took us into their building first before we actually went to the pit head and this on its own was very interesting. At the back of the building was a row of garages and each garage had been done out inside as though it was a different part of the pit. The first one was a big open space that we realised when we went down was the sort of area you see when you get out of the lift cage. And then each garage as you went along appeared to take you further down along the workings until you got to the final garage which was the coal face itself with all pit props, bits of machinery and a much tighter space to get into. The idea being to teach all the mines rescue people what it is like in different parts of the pit before they actually went down and saw it for real. So for us to go from garage to garage and look in and see what it was like gave us an idea of what we were going to expect when we went down in the cage. Well we went down in the cage and I was a little apprehensive. I wasn't sure whether I'd get claustrophobic or whether I'd start to panic because there was something like 1200 feet of soil and rock above me. But I didn't have any problems whatsoever. Strolled about quite unconcerned. Even when he said, right, we'll go on a man rider next. I thought, that sounds dodgy. But it was a, a form of conveyor belt. And you got on it, knelt on it. And it started up and it took you zooming down the pit quicker than walking down. In the bigger areas, there were trains that would do it. But they were all weird engines on them because you couldn't have anything that gave off a spark just in case there were any gases down there that would cause an explosion. I can't remember now how these engines worked but they, they worked without giving off sparks or ignitions. So we went down and we kept progressing until we were in an area where I suppose in the good old days it had been worse because miners would have been on their hands and knees crawling into the coal seams. 
whereas now it was a, a big powerful machine that worked from side to side and scoured the coal out, it dropped it onto a conveyor belt and away it went to the means of getting out of the pit. But yes, it brought it home to me just what it was like. I suppose it was more poignant because some of my family were coal miners in their day, coming from South Derbyshire and near to Swaddling Coat and Gresley and those sort of areas where there were pits, and then in later life moving up to around Ripley and Hena where there were even more coal mines in their time. I know a lot of people who worked down the coal mines. And amongst them were different characters. One of them, my dad's cousin, he had been a South Derbyshire miner all his working life. And to anybody that wasn't from the area, he needed an interpreter. I know we were at a function once and I asked my then wife, I said, go and, go and ask Harry if he wants a cup of tea or what does he want. And she came back and I said, well, what did he say? She says, I haven't a clue. But Harry was one of those sort of people. If he wanted to know if, he got, if you'd got a cigarette, he'd say, have you got any on you? Have you got any on you? Or the sort of person who, doing repairs, would nail on a bog of needles and go kneeling his knee. Translates as... I, if you kneel on a bag of nails, you'll get a nail in your knee. But in those days in South Derbyshire, it was all corrupted. People often say, oh, hey, up me duck is a standard Derbyshire greeting, but in that area, it was, hey, up sorry. Don't ask me where it came from, but that was what everybody shouted when they saw each other. Hey, up sorry, and you going. Hello, pal. How you getting on? Now, my great-uncle was another one. As long as I knew him, he'd only got one eye. I don't know how or when he lost it. But he used to cycle to work. If he was on early shift, he'd be up early in the morning, pedalling away about five o'clock in the morning to get to work. Now the tale that's told in the family, and it's been told for a long, long time, was that he, because he'd only got one eye, he didn't see very well to start with. So if there was any ice on the road, he couldn't see it. So he went at the same pace if it was icy as he did if it was good weather. Similarly, if it was foggy. Now apparently on this one morning, it was dark, still dark and it was a bit misty, and he saw two rear lights in front of him. Now, my great-uncle, being my great-uncle, looked up, saw these two lights, and thought, oh, it's so-and-so-and-so-and-so biking to work. Mind you, I'm catching them up. So he did no more than yell, keep still, you two, I'm coming between you, and carried on pedalling at the same rate. 
Apparently a few seconds later he ran smack into the back of the early warning postman out with his van. All he'd seen was the real lights of this van. But that was my great uncle. Always a character, always worth a laugh. Talking of South Derbyshire dialects, while we were still at school, uh, a friend of mine and myself wrote a little booklet, The Visitor's Guide to Derbyshire Talk. I wish we'd have carried on with it and tried to get it published, but we didn't. But I've seen similar things around now for sale, you can buy them. But we put posh versions onto what the actual saying was. If a Derbyshire person says, Hey, bonte foy up chimney, which means that burnt halfway up the chimney, it means he got a damn good fire going. But we translated that into, Oh, I say, sir, that was jolly good coal. Or, if it wasn't burning very well, they'd say, that's rammel, there's no bislect. Which means that's rubbish, there's nothing but slack in that coal. And we translated that along the lines of, oh, oh, that is most inferior coal that you've sold me there. There's not a great deal of goodness in it. And so it went on. Things that we'd heard said and we put our own exceedingly posh translation to it. If somebody was going along and they were talking about the countryside, for instance, they'd say, yeah, it's all right, but it's no blumps and hollers over there. Meaning it's all ups and downs, humps and hollows. But of course we translated that as Oh, this is magnificent, most undulating countryside. And so it went on. We did several pages of it, we were quite proud of it really. But there again we did daft things like that. We tried editing a song once. I'd got an old 78 of the Ballad of Davy Crockett. And some of the verses were... I think, it, I think one, of the, one of the lines was he packed up his gear and his trusty gun. And I'd got one of the Kinks records where it refers to purple hearts and cigarettes. So in our version, when we got the tape all edited and ready, it said he packed up his purple hearts and cigarettes. And at one point it said he answered his country's call. So we put a sound of a telephone ringing into it. He patched up a crack in the Liberty Bell. And we'd got somebody asking for a tube of Bostic in a Southern American accent. It worked. We were pleased with it. 
I can't remember all the details now. I don't even know what happened to the tape in the end, but we played it at different places where we went when we did things. Usually got a laugh. But there again in those days, our sense of humour was... I wouldn't say eccentric, but it was jumping on the type of humour that was coming through. I'd sort of been weaned on the, the Goon Show and later on when it got a version of it on the television, the Telly Goons, I'd grown up with that. Absolutely loved it, thought it was hilarious. But then as time progressed we got into such lunacy as, I'm sorry I'll read that again where people like Tim Brooke Taylor came to the fore. Crazy humour. But we enjoyed it. Listening to the radio as young kids. And we weren't listening to Radio 1 or records. We were listening to comedy programmes. As I got older and started going away on holiday, I was very often out for the evening and driving back about 10 o'clock at night. And there was always a comedy programme on, on Radio 2 at 10 till half past. Jokers Wild and programmes like that, where they were trying to make up things as the programme went along, trying to make up jokes, make up quotes. Different, different ones each time. People like Ken Dodd were on it. It was, it was interesting. Just a minute. I love that. It's still going. I love that. People like Kenneth Williams and Clement Freud were on it in those days. Sort of eccentrics in their own way, but able to tell a tale or feign irritation with something. Then, of course, came I'm Sorry I Haven't a Clue. That was, that was another one that was a great favourite of mine. Elaine once bought me a CD set for I'm Sorry I Haven't a Clue. And there is one superb part of the CDs where it tells of the history of the game of Mornington Crescent. Now, this is just something that is anybody that doesn't listen to the programme. It's a nonsense thing where they quote stations on the London Underground. And in the history of the game, it talks about Mornington Crescent in the time of the Romans and how it's been moved slightly from where they had it originally. All totally ridiculous comments, but told in a way that makes it sound as though it's real. Told in a way that you think, are they joking or is it serious? And those are the sort of ways I go. I used to tell tales when I was 
originally working in Belper, not long after I'd come up here. And there was a, a woman worked with us, and I'd tell some of the tales, some of the things that had happened. And she'd sit there for a while, and then she'd say, are you telling the truth, or are you joking, or are you having us on, or what? And bless her, I loved her to bits, but she could never work out whether I was being serious or not. More often than not, I was. I was telling the tale about things that had really happened. But she got to know me as time went on, and we got on very well together. We didn't have a problem. I was sorry when she left. I was doubly sorry, really, because I knew she was leaving, and I went down to see her to make sure I saw her before she left and wish her well in her retirement. But she'd taken leave, and when I went down to, to see her and wish her well, she'd, she'd already left, she'd gone. And I never have caught up with her again, which is one of my regrets. I wanted to, uh, I wanted to wish her well, give her my love. Never mind, can't help it now. One of the things I saw in the week, it was a couple that had arrived at in the Peak District and they wanted to do a ride along the Monsell Trail. And Elaine's ears pricked up because we've done that and they wanted to hire a couple of bikes and go along it. I thought, oh, might be interesting to have a look at this. And they went to the same place where we hide our bikes from, at Hassop Station. But I was aggrieved because they came out with two electric bikes. I thought they hadn't got them when we were there. I mean, I'd not touched a bike for, what, 30 years or more. And they gave us a couple of proper bikes. But it was OK. We, we did the distance. We went from Hassop to... The end of the line, Millersdale, Millersdale Station, since been refurbished, had some extra work done on it and a bit of a cafe added, I believe. I'll have to go back and have a look. But we cycled from one end to the other. We stopped and had a look at the what was a private station for Thornfield Hall. Got up onto the platform, part of it's a private house now, the old buildings, but we got up onto the platform and looked through the gate to where the coach, his master's coach used to wait for him coming off the train to take him back to the hall. Good old days, they say they were. I'd like to have just had a look at them just to see if they were. I suppose it depended on what part of the hierarchy you were in. If you were the one getting off the train and getting on the coach to go back to the hall, it'd be a good old days. If you were one of the workers at the hall and having to get up in the early hours of morning to stoke all the fires up or put everything to bed at night, you probably wouldn't think of the same thing. Or go round collecting the boots and scrubbing them all up for the following morning. Probably wouldn't be so impressed. But we cycled on and we came past Hassop Station and went down to the other end of the trail at Bakewell Station. 
because I was from a farming background initially, but then a railway background, because my dad worked for about 40 years on the railways, and we lived next to the railway for 25 years of my life. I got to like trains, railways, so I had a good look round the old Bakewell station, had a look at the way it was laid out, former buildings, and this is what interests me. If we go on the High Peak Trails or any of those, if we come to some of the old quarry workings or some of the old lineside buildings, I have to imagine what it must have been like when it was a hub of activity, when those cranes in the quarries were working, when everything was going full speed ahead. I did that some years ago. We were down in South Wales and we went to Porthgain. And on the side of the harbour there is a row of lime kilns and loading, old loading areas. I bought an old postcard which showed a row of ships waiting to take the stone from the loading areas into the cargo. Well, as we walked along the harbour side, we went past these and then up some steps at the far end and onto the top of the cliffs. And there were the remains of old railway lines. Just the areas, you could just see where the sleepers had been and see the course of the track. One of which just went to a further part of the cliffs and ended there. And that was where there used to be the buffers and they used to tip the rock and the waste that they didn't want back into the sea and then the other way brought it to the top of the ramps for the kilns and the loading areas. There was a set of buildings up there, just derelict buildings that used to be parts of the works. And I find that all interesting. Industrial archaeology fascinates me. Same as today, back to where I started from. Cromford Mills, Richard Arkwright's original buildings and the area of his buildings. Still got some of the sluice and water courses and the way that he powered all his workings with water and a huge water wheel and sets of wheels. just makes me wonder who came up with the idea of doing this who was it as thought we could build locks to harness canals and alter the level of water in a canal or we could put a, a sluice gate in to hold back the water until we needed it and then it would drive the water wheel to power the mill or to power the factory in Richard Arkwright's case who thinks of these sort of things? I suppose you can put that to everything, can't you? Who first thought that if you used malt and hops and boiled it and added sugar, you'd end up with beer if you treated it right? Somebody must have thought of it. Everything you think of, you think, well, 
who thought of putting strings across a wooden frame and making a violin, and if you pulled this bow thing across it, you could play a tune. Weird and wonderful people who came up with these. But in today's society, we're glad they did. All of these different things, as somebody years ago thought of, we are living on the back of now and enjoying a far better life than if we'd have been that under-butler or servant at the hall, polishing the boots and making the fires. We don't do that now because of people like that who've invented all of these labour-saving and pleasure-giving devices. I'm getting complicated with stuff now, trying to think things through. So I'll say ta for now. Talk to you soon. Ta-ra.